Welcome to Rock Harbor Church's channel on Sermon Audio. We hope that this message is a blessing to you and it helps you in your daily walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So please, settle in and grab your Bibles. Here's our guest speaker with this message. One of the greatest battles that America ever faced in her military history was the Battle of Bulge in World War II. On December 16, 1944, 200,000 German soldiers and 1,000 tanks, along with other armored vehicles, broke through the Allied lines. They were in the Ardennes Force. They were trying to to split the American forces, drive all the way to the to the coast, and then separate these two camps and surround them. Uh, This breakthrough in battle became known as the Battle of the Bulge because it it pressed the the lines deep in and, and made a big bulge in the front lines. Now, this battle was marked by dozens of examples of of smaller units of soldiers exhibiting great heroism and valor, uh, even down to the rank and file. Uh, Even though they were uh, hindered by lack of supplies, uh, lack of uh, overall arching strategy for the battle because it caught them unawares, and, and lack of ammo, lack of equipment for the weather they were facing. Now, as a young man, when I was in the Ranger Battalion at Fort Lewis, Washington, uh, I was struck by a poster that many of the soldiers had on the walls of their uh, dorm rooms or their barracks rooms, and that was a picture of an 82nd Airborne soldier from the Battle of the Bulge digging a foxhole. And there was this little statement underneath of it, a little paragraph, and as the story goes, there was a whole armored division that was retreating in, in the front of the Germans. And the, there was a, a tank commander, a, a sergeant, who was looking down as he was going out, and he sees a soldier digging a foxhole. And the soldier looks over to him and, and uh, says, um, Hey, buddy, are you looking for a safe place? And the, and the tank commander looks down at him and says, Yeah. And the soldier says, Well, hey, just pull your tank in right here behind my foxhole. I'm the 82nd Airborne. And this is as far as those buggers are going to go. And that was as far as they went. It was this kind of heroism that turned the stem, that turned the tide. It stemmed the the invasion of the Germans. Well, here in the evangelical world in the last few years, we're facing our own battle, the bulge. In the last few years, the evangelicals have been pushed back, surrendering, retreating left and right. Uh, Is there hitting this onslaught, there's been enemy forces amassing for decades. And all of a sudden, we're getting hit from all these enemies at one time, just devastating the evangelical church. And what we need to have in our own hearts as individual believers is the determination that even when everybody else is retreating, we're going to dig in right here. We are not going to surrender one inch on the gospel. We are not going to surrender one inch on the Bible. We are not going to surrender one inch on the fundamental doctrines of the faith. We are not going to surrender one inch on vital prophetic truth. We're going to dig in. We're going to stand our ground until either the Lord summons us home through our last breath or he summons the whole church home through the rapture of the church. But you know, one of the things that my mind has been exercised on is the great opportunity that we have right now in the face of this devastating attack, the battle of the bulge that we're facing. You know, as a young believer, I grew up cutting my teeth reading about the first and second great awakenings with the first great awakening with John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield and the second great awakening with Charles Finney and these great revivals that spread through America and spread to other parts of the world. And I remember thinking, what a bummer. I got ripped off, Lord. I wished I could have been born back then, the days of those revivals. But you know, as I matured in the faith, I come to realize, folks, right now, we stand at one of the most critical hours in the history of the church. We have an opportunity right now for this to be the church's most glorious hour since the days of the apostles. And this comes down to what we, as individual Christians, we as local churches, we as evangelicals across the land, what we do. We can either make this an hour of tragedy and shame, or we can make this an hour of great battlefield glory. As individual believers and local churches stood for the truth of the living God, for the word of God in the last days. This is all up to us. Now, right now, we are facing our own battle of the bulge. And I'm going to give us uh, 
get eight fingers up here. Eight reasons. That's hard to hold up eight fingers. Eight enemies that we are facing. The first one is the attack on the gospel. You know, back in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, the liberals started attacking the evangelicals and says, you folks are preaching the wrong gospel. The gospel's not saving people from eternal hell and giving them eternal heaven. The gospel is making this world a better place to live in so every individual human being has a better time down here between their birth and their death. And the evangelical said, ah, oh, no, we're not going to go there. That's, that's, that's heresy. So the, the liberals retreated. But then you come around the time of World War II and the liberals had a new idea because the devil's always cooking up something new. Error's always getting more sophisticated. And he cooks up a new idea. Well, they rejected if I just tried to switch the gospels out. I'm going to give them a twofold gospel. And so around uh, World War II in that era, coming up into the 60s and 70s, the church embraced this idea that we've got a twofold commission. The, the one gospel is the gospel of eternal life versus eternal damnation. The other gospel is the social gospel. We're going to make this world a better place to live in so every human being has a better situation down here on planet Earth. This time, the evangelicals bit. And this was a wise step by the devil because the devil knows that no man can serve two masters. And you get these two gospels contending with each other for time and attention and money and, and heart affection. And eventually, one of them is going to come out on top. If you're a, a real strong evangelical, of course, the gospel comes out on top. But if you are not a real strong evangelical, the gospel goes down the toilet. And this is exactly what's happened to the modern evangelical church. And, and this is why, how the doors got opened in the evangelical church for the contemporary apostasy. When you let the gospel go, you're draining the foundation. You're undermining the foundation. And so now today we're facing a situation where the modern evangelicals have become the new Protestants. You know, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, the great Protestant denominations used to be rock-solid evangelicals despite all their other doctrinal problems. Started to apostatize from the faith, give up literal heaven, literal hell, literal salvation, the eternal sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ, the absolute necessity of a virgin birth, the absolute necessity of blood atonement. The salvation by faith alone, they started giving up all these things and drifting. And now we have evangelicals, circles, and churches where you've got whole denominations and whole seminary circles where they have people that are in the pastorate or in the Bible school faculty that are not really evangelicals. It's a tragic situation. But this is an attack on the gospel. That's where it starts. That's where this whole problem starts. So folks, if the Lord has exercised your heart to be involved in some kind of social activity with the gospel, that's great. But just always keep in mind that the cutting edge of, of your work needs to be the old-fashioned salvation from hell and salvation unto heaven gospel. That needs to be the cutting edge of the whole message. Everything else we do is part of our testimony of righteousness, part of the testimony of God's truth. And it doesn't matter if you get involved in the abortion issue, you get involved in, in the political issues, you get involved in, um, the, the, on the military side of things, you get involved in the education side of things. Uh, and I know that Rock Harbor here has had a great reputation for being involved in some of these issues on the local level. That's okay. We need to have that testimony of righteousness, but never forget that those things are not the gospel. The gospel is salvation from God's judgment. These things are a testimony of righteousness in a world that hates God's righteousness. Now, one of the biggest attacks that we have on the gospel today is people are preaching this prosperity gospel. They're preaching the word of faith gospel. Folks, I think this is a huge, huge mistake. God did not call you to be prosperous, in perfect health, and have a yacht and a fancy car and a mansion. That's not Christianity. Whatever Christianity is, you can take that message, that gospel message, you can take it up, and you can take and drop it in any century, any continent, any country, any culture, and it's going to have the exact same effect. You take this modern prosperity gospel, you pick it up and you drop it in the Iron Curtain back in the 50s and 60s. How is that going to fit? Uh, not, not so good. 
You take and pick it up and you drop it in a modern China. How's it going to work? Uh, not so good. You're going you're gonna to take and drop it in some of the most poverty-stricken areas of South America or Africa. How's it going to work? Uh, not very good at all. So ultimately what you end up saying is, oh, I'm sorry, folks. You were just born in the wrong country in the wrong century. The gospel is really not going to work that good for you. This is, this is a, a bogus message, folks. That prosperity gospel is, I think, if it's not heresy, it's verging on heresy. Now, what we're facing then is the real gospel. That's our job. And we've got all this effort trying to get us to drive away, push away from the gospel. People want us to, to focus on social issues. They want us to focus on ourselves instead of focusing on others. You know, I hear people sometimes say, oh, you guys are so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. And I scratch my head and I'm thinking, what? What are you guys talking about? Did you take a different math than I took? In the world I come from, two plus two does not equal five. Two plus two equals four. And what you're talking about here with this gospel message, this, this, is, this is messed up. This is like a different gospel. This I, fact, the fact is, I've never seen anyone so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Everywhere I look, people are so earthly minded, they're no heavenly good. That's the big problem I'm seeing. You know, the social gospel is touted as the truest sign of love. You know, oh, if you love your fellow man, you're going to make sure that his all of his temporal needs are met and we're going to get pollution out of the world and we're going to get crime out of the world and we're going to make this world a great place. Well, have fun trying to bind the devil. <clears throat> uh, have fun trying to find a chain strong enough. You can't fix these world's problems until you fix the devil. And that's going to happen when the Lord Jesus descends from heaven. But in the meantime, we got an opportunity to preach the gospel and see people saved one at a time from the problems of the world. So we need to be faithful. This social gospel is not the truest expression of love. The truest expression of love is that you're going to tell people about Jesus Christ crucified. That is the greatest demonstration of love that you can give to the world. Because that's God's greatest demonstration of love, was giving his son. You take that gift and you spread it around, you're spreading the greatest power of love in the world. Now, the second thing we're facing is an attack on the Bible. The devil hates every institution of God. He hates the church. He hates Israel. He hates the Bible. He hates the gospel. He hates the distinction between the sexes. He hates the home and marriage. He hates a bunch of other things. He even hates meat and dairy. Wants us to eat algae and bugs. But he's attacking the Bible. Why does he, why does he attack the Bible? Because the Bible is the word of the living God. You get that message confused... And you're going to have, now you can run the table. Now the Bible, folks, is verbally and plenarily inspired. Verbally means every word in the original Greek in the, for the New Testament and the original Hebrew and the Aramaic for the Old Testament. That, every word, in fact, every letter is inspired of God. Not one jot nor one tittle is missing from that record in heaven. And we have an obligation in our uh, translations of the Bible, whether we're translating English or Spanish or French or German or Russian or Chinese or what have you, we need to make sure that we have literal translations that accurately reflect what God put in those texts. Now, when we're talking about the inspiration of Scripture, we're also talking about its sufficiency and its perspicuity. There's a lot of people that will give lip service to the authority of Scripture, and yet they undermine it continually. For instance, if we believe that the Bible... The sufficiency of Scripture. We believe the Bible is sufficient to do everything that we're, in, we're designed by God to do in the gospel work, in discipleship work, in teaching work. Then we're saying that, that everything we need is in the Bible. We don't have, go have to have a PhD in psychology to be able to counsel people. And, and we need to understand, if we don't already understand, that man's problems are moral and spiritual. They're not primarily psychological or emotional. If people are dealing with psychological or emotional problems and they're not genetic, they're not from their birth, then those problems are because they have spiritual problems in their life. You fix those spiritual problems and eventually those psychological and emotional problems are going to heal themselves. And so we, if we understand this, then we believe that the Bible is sufficient. 
We don't need the world's help on psychology because the issue is not the soul. The issue is the heart, the spirit. Now, we also believe in the perspicuity of Scripture. In other words, very, I mean, that's a big word, but all it means is God meant what he said, and he said what he meant. The Bible says what it appears to say. It implies what it appears to imply, and it infers what it appears to infer. And we can just trust this. You know, man's biggest problem when it comes to trying to understand the teachings of the Bible and getting sound doctrine is this. Instead of coming to a point where they determine that they're going to get all their doctrine from the plain statements of Scripture, interpreted by the plain statements of Scripture, they're going to approach the Bible like they're 12 years old and just trust it. They start approaching the Bible like they're super wise and they start with philosophical presuppositions. And they exalt those presuppositions over the plain statements of Scripture. Every major false doctrine in the church is a philosophical presupposition exalted over the plain statements of Scripture. You start, you, if you just embrace in principle, I'm not going to believe any doctrine that you can't teach by the plain statements of Scripture, you will never fall into false doctrine. And if you've fallen into it, you'll fall out of it really hurry, in a hurry. You'll fall out of it like you're on a hay wagon ride that's on the side of a hill and it tips. You'll just, you get thrown right out of that garbage. Now, if we take the Bible seriously, not only are we going to believe in its sufficiency and we're going to believe in its perspicuity, but we're also going to believe in its historicity. We're going to believe that the early chapters of the Genesis are real history. We're going to trust the account of man's fall. We're going to trust the account of the curse. We're going to trust the account of, of creation, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. We're not going to treat these like they were fairy tales that have some spiritual or religious value, as if a fairy tale actually could have any real spiritual value. But now that we're on this line here, the third point, folks, is the attack on reason. The foundation of all true spirituality is not your emotions, not your feelings, it's not your experiences. Get all the feelings, emotions, and experiences you can, but get them on this ground. The ground of true spirituality is using your God-given reason on the God-given revelation, on the Word of God. When we start departing from using God's revelation and using God's given reason, and we start going away from that, we're going to end up not in spirituality, but a religious carnality. And so basically where we're going with this is you have some circles where they're all caught up in emotions and experiences. You have other uh, situations where they're starting with philosophical presuppositions that they exalt against the plain statements of Scripture. I'll just give you one. The Bible's very clear that God wishes that nobody should perish. And we got whole theological systems that say, ah, you can't take that seriously. Well, I do. I don't care if if you can line up a thousand names with PhDs after their name that don't take that verse at face value. I take it at face value. And this is an attack on reason, folks. Basically, when you, whether people are going to exalt philosophy over the Word of God or exalt emotions and experiences over the Word of God, what they are doing is they're replacing biblical spirituality with, with the devil's spirituality. And you know what the devil's spirituality is? It's very simple. You take the top of your head off, set it aside, you reach in and you grab your brain, you pull it out, you drop it over here in the potty, and then you flush. That's the devil's spirituality. The epitome of true spirituality in a lot of circles today is flushing your brain down the potty and refusing to think. It's refusing to use your God-given reason on God-given revelation to test all things, to prove all things. And, uh, you know, over the years I've been attacked many, many times. Oh, brother, you're just not listening to the experts. I don't need the experts. I've got the word of God. Oh, brother, you're, you're just too proud. You won't submit. The true test of humility is not your submission to your fellow man. The true 
test of humility. The ultimate test of humility is submitting to the word of God, even if the whole world rejects it, even if the whole church rejects it. We need to be standing on the word of God. We need to be digging in on the word of God. And if folks are going to put tension between the leading of the spirit and the leading of the word of God, I want you to hit the alarm button and take off. Get out of there. Skedaddle. There's never any tension between the leading of the Spirit and the leading of the Word of God. The Holy Spirit leads regularly, but He leads inside the precepts and principles of Scripture, never outside. Now, one of the other ways in which the Word of God is undermined is we have people that today that profess to be prophets and apostles. And, and you're obligated to follow them, according to these people. Well, whatever happened to test the, the tests of the prophets and the apostles and the scriptures? Aren't we supposed to take the word of God and test those that claim to be prophets and test those that claim to be apostles? Test them by their character? Test them by their doctrine? Test them by the word of God? Basically, what this boils down to is whether you're following emotions, following prophets and apostles, or following some authoritative creed, what you're doing is you're letting things trump the scriptures. We need to make sure that in our heart, we are going to stand on the scriptures and the scriptures alone. Sola Scriptura, the Bible, is the only rule of faith and practice. Now, the fourth thing that we're getting attacked on is the fundamental doctrines of the faith. We've, we've got people that are out there redefining Christianity. We've got people that are revisiting Christianity. We have people that are reconstructing and deconstructing Christianity. And we've got people that are trying to give us these emergent versions of Christianity. Basically, all of them come down to the same thing. You can't trust the Old Testament. We can't believe it. And we can't believe the fundamental doctrines of the faith. We need to start all over from scratch. Well, folks, there's no need to reinvent the wheel. And every wheel that I've seen reinvented is clumping along like a square wheel. It's not real easy to, to pull a cart down the road, no matter how many horses you got, if the wheels are square. Clump, clump, clump. It's awkward. So let's, let's not be influenced by these movements, folks, that are trying to take away the fundamental doctrines of the faith. And the way to defend the faith, a way to be an encouragement to those around us is just absolutely refuse to surrender. We're going to dig in. Salvation by faith alone is not optional. It is the truth of the living God. And folks, by the way, I don't know if you thought about this or not. Salvation by faith alone did not get introduced in the New Testament. The only way of salvation from the garden has been salvation by grace through faith. In the Old Testament, people were saved under the law. They were not saved by the law. No one's ever been saved by the law. No one can be saved by the law. No one can be saved by any system of works. It's absolutely impossible. The law can only condemn. The law can only reflect God's glorious holy character and show you that you've fallen far short of it. So right there in the beginning of Genesis, what do we see? We see when, when Adam and Eve were being dealt with by God for their sin, we see the promise of the seed of the woman. That's the promise of the coming Messiah. And later on, that became the promise of the seed of Abraham. Then it became the promise of through Isaac, then through, the, through Jacob. Then it became the son of David. And then we have the, the visitation of the Messiah in reality, and we're looking for a second coming. But also there in the early chapters of Genesis, what do we see? We see Adam and Eve being clothed in lambskins. That was a picture of the blood atonement. So right there, from the very beginning of the Bible, we have the message of blood atonement and Jesus the Messiah. And that message got expanded through the Old Testament until it exploded on the world with light at the time of the first coming of Christ. And this is the same message we preach. And that's the message that's going to be preached in the 70th week during the tribulation. They're going to be preaching salvation by grace through faith. It's the same new covenant salvation that we got today. But they're preaching it under the law. They're going to be on the same ground they're on in the 69th week when the Lord Jesus was on earth the first time 
bringing the new covenant message to the people that were under the old covenant. And God's goal is what? God's goal is to get the people under the old covenant, to leave the old covenant, and to embrace the new covenant. And so when we come to the 70th week, the Lord Jesus is going to pick up exactly where he left off at the cross. Going to go back to the people under the law and show them you can't be saved by the law. You can't be righteous by the law. You need to be saved by grace, through faith, through the blood of the new covenant in Christ Jesus. That's going to be a blessed message. And we get the privilege of sharing that message today. The fundamental doctrines of the faith. But there's another attack that we're facing, folks, and this is the big moral issues of the day. I look around the last couple of years and some of the big names, well, some of these names I always thought were a little, there's some issues going on there, but I didn't think that they were unsaved. I just thought that they were wishy-washy. And now I see some of these big names going belly up on the LGBTQ issues, going belly up on perversion. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, what's going on here? How in the world can you get from being a, a serious follower of the Lord Jesus over here to this apostate ground? How do, you, how do you do that? Makes me wonder, were some of these names ever saved? Or were they just religious as if they had been a Catholic priest, but they're of an evangelical stamp? So anyway... We used to be a moral majority in evangelical circles. We used to be part of this great big picture of Americans that were at least gave lip service to the Bible and gave lip service to the morality of, of the Word of God. And we may not have lived it entirely, but we were, we were at least embracing it and, and owning it in our profession. And now in America today, evangelicals are the moral minority. We're standing alone. And when you look at, at how the, the Roman Catholic Church has been going belly up on moral issues, you look at the big compromises and the cracks in Mormonism and some of these other uh, groups that were part of the moral majority in America and how they're forsaking that ground, we're not too far away from true blue evangelicals who believe the Bible's the, the verbally inspired word of God who are going to be standing alone on the moral issues of the day. Everyone else is going to be gone. So that, that raises a question. Are you prepared to be standing alone in that day? Are you going to be strengthened by, in the inner man with might so that you can stand alone even if, even if you are the only one? You know, I remember one time as a young man, maybe some of you young folks can identify with this. It's 20, I was 22, 23, somewhere in there. I was going to the University of North Dakota and I took a class in cultural geography. It was one of these big high-rise classrooms, maybe not as big as some of the California universities because I was at the University of North Dakota, but that classroom probably fit 150, 200 people. And it was just, the, the, the professor was down on a lecture stand in the front and then the stairs or the, the uh, seats went up like a big high-rise stadium. And we had all, this class was full. It was a mandatory course for freshmen. And the professor gets up in front and he says, do we got any of those nutcases here that think Jesus is the only way of salvation? Just looks around. I raise my hand, me, right here, I do. Uh, he was so happy. Uh, that made his day, made his semester, really. About once a week, he'd pose these massive questions that would pit me against the whole class. It was a lot of fun. But I wasn't going to back down. Me and God, we're a majority. The word of God is the truth of the living God. There's no reason to be discouraged. There's no reason to back down. There's no reason to surrender. You know, this, this has never been an issue of who's the smartest. This has always been an issue of who's going to trust the word of God. The word of God has communicated this to a way in which your average 11 or 12-year-old kid can understand the meat and potatoes of the message. And it's the meat and potatoes where we either surrender or we stand. This battle isn't on who knows the most Greek or who knows the most history or who knows the most Hebrew. This battle is on who trusts the word of the living God. You know, sometimes people ask me, well, Brother Lee, I, I'm, I'm thinking of studying Bible languages like you and I, I'm thinking of studying Greek. What's the most important tool I need to study Greek? 
The most important tool you need to study Greek is to master the Bible in your mother tongue. Because otherwise, if you don't do that, you know what you're going to do with your Greek? If you're Baptist, you're going to have Baptist Greek. You're Pentecostal, you'll have Pentecostal Greek. If you're Catholic, you'll have Catholic Greek. You're just going to use the Greek that you learn to defend whatever you believe. What you need to have to, to, to study biblical languages is to tremble at the word of God in your mother tongue. You need to trust that word. That God meant what he said and he said what he meant. And I can take this to the bank even if I stand alone. At any rate, I was a little bit of a rabbit trail off the moral issues here. We're dealing with uh, moral issues. And these moral issues always lead back to trusting the Word of God. Some of you young people are facing struggles today. that We saw them coming 20, 30, 40 years ago. But you're living them. You're in situations now. When you take a stand for the morality of the Bible, the odds are you're going to be standing with few allies, maybe no allies. In high school, in college, first levels of your career in the, in the world. This is a whole different world. This is not the world I came into 60-some years ago. This is not the world I first had my job 40-some years ago. This is a world that's gone crazy. It's being turned upside down by powers and principalities that are determined to mar and deface every institution of God on the planet and make God's goodness look like badness and make the devil's badness look like goodness. At any rate, one of the other issues that we're facing is an attack on Bible prophecy. It used to be some 40 years ago when I was a young believer, it seemed like most of those that professed to be evangelical Christians were believing in a premillennial return of the Lord Jesus and believing in a pre-tribulation rapture. They dominated the television scene. Those views dominated radio. They dominated the publishing world. Well, today, 40-some years later, it's a very different world. Today, premillennialism is becoming a laughingstock and pre-tribulationism is regarded as a joke in many circles today. But folks, I want you to just stand on the word of God. Be faithful. You know, I regularly, on my Twitter account, I get hammered by people that mock the pre-tribulation rapture. Oh, the pre-tribulation rapture is a joke. That was invented in the 1830s by J.N. Darby, who, who got it from a false prophetess who heard, who got a vision from, or a, a revelation from a false spirit pretending to be the Holy Spirit. These people don't know history. And when you show them history, they look away. They won't look at it. You can demonstrate from the time of the 1800s that J.N. Darby did not get his, his understanding of the pre-tribulation rapture from a false prophetess by the name of Margaret MacDonald. And you can also demonstrate from history that the pre-tribulation rapture was taught in the early church fathers. There's dozens of pre-tribulation rapture passages in the first four centuries. So at any rate, stand on, the, on, on Bible prophecy. Just trust the word of God. The word of God says in Revelation 3.10, we're going to be kept from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world. Guess what that means? It means there's an hour of trial coming upon the whole world and we won't be here. If that hour of trial is going to cover this whole globe and we're going to be kept from the hour of trial, the only way you can be kept from this hour of trial that comes on the whole globe is to be taken out from that situation. Otherwise, you're being kept through. And it doesn't say that I'm going to keep you through the hour of trial. It says I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. If you tell your son to keep your hand out of the cookie jar, you're not telling him to keep his hand in the cookie jar. Tell him to keep it out. And that's exactly what Revelation 3.10 means. Now, there's another interesting thing here on Bible prophecy, and maybe this will be a help to you. When you think of Bible prophecy, do you think of a timeline and where you're going to put the dot for the rapture? If that's what you think of, the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of Bible prophecy, you need to go a little deeper and a little broader because the rapture is more than just a dot on a timeline. 
the, the, the concept of Bible prophecy is that there's a clear distinction between Israel and the church. God made promises to the physical descendants of Jacob in the Old Testament. And he promised them land promises, temple promises, throne promises, inheritance promises. And these promises were reiterated over and over again. They're reiterated in the Gospels. They're, they're mentioned again in the early chapters of Acts. They're mentioned in the epistles. And they're mentioned again here and there in the book of Revelation. These promises and prophecies are going to be fulfilled exactly and literally to the physical descendants of Jacob. This means where we see that God's going to gather Israel in the Old Testament promise, prophecies, that that's going to happen in the last days. This means we come to Matthew 24, for instance, we need to ask the question, is this the gathering of Israel or is this the gathering of the church? Now, if we go to the context, where, where do we see the church in Matthew 24? Well, we don't see it. What do we see? Well, we see people that are told to flee Judea. In other words, it doesn't say if you live in Montana, flee to the Rocky Mountains. It doesn't say if you live in California, flee to the Sierras. It says if you live in, in the Judea, flee to the mountains of Judea. It also says that they're gonna, God is going to uphold the Sabbath. We don't keep the Sabbath. It also says that the temple is the holy place of God. It's the temple of God. That's not true today. God rent the veil in the, in the physical temple before he went to start at Pentecost, the spiritual temple. He's got to remove the spiritual temple out of the world before he can go back to the physical temple. He cannot have two God-honored temples on earth at the same time. That means the church has to be gathered and taken out of the world, and then later on, he's going to gather Israel as promised in the Old Testament. So if you keep this in mind, then now we got a very clear picture. Now we have a theological foundation under that timeline, and it's not merely where we put a dot. Now we're talking about the distinction between the program of Israel and the program of the church. And if you get that straight, prophecy will begin to fall in place for you. If you don't get that straight, you're going to struggle with the interpretation of many, many passages in the New Testament. Literal tribulation, literal pre-tribulation rapture, literal antichrist, literal second coming, and what a glory that's going to be. can hardly wait. Now, we also have an issue that we're facing. This is the number seven out of the eight. And this is the big brother, New World Order, World Economic Forum stuff that's been coming after us like crazy. Folks, we have some serious issues going on around us, and many Christians are getting discouraged and getting tired by this. You know, up until a few years ago, when I looked around the evangelicals, evangelicals were comfortable with the clean parts of the world. If we were going to national parks or doing sporting events or we were involved in certain issues that we were excited about, like the NRA or something else like that, we, we didn't feel uncomfortable in a lot of these circumstances, except maybe if you watch football and TV, you have to turn the commercials off. But we're getting to the point now where the world is so polluted and so defiled by this uh, new moral order by this new world order agenda, by new morality, that everywhere we look, we're defiled and we're polluted. We can't even breathe the air around us hardly without breathing this garbage in. And so Christians used to be able to feel comfortable in a lot of these environments, and now we're feely, feeling uncomfortable in these same environments. You know, I've gotten to the point where I, I've ne- I haven't intentionally turned to a major news station uh, on the, and I don't have a TV, I only have the internet, but I haven't gone to any of the major news outlets for, well, since this whole uh, situation with uh, the injections came in. Haven't been there since. I, I, just, can't, I just can't handle that stuff anymore. Now, well, right now we're facing an intentional destruction of the dollar. We're facing an intentional introduction of uh, a digital currency that's going to be used for social grading, that's going to be used for the manipulation of mankind, psychologically manipulating them, hurting them. It's going to be used like a cattle prod. Oh, you want to go that way? We'll fix you. Oh, you want to go that way? We'll fix you. We'll just, you know, put a hold on your on your money, or we'll just take money out of your account. I got a, a email a while back from from uh, one of the social media outlets I use, threatening that if I misspeak and use misinformation on 
on any social media platform. It doesn't even have to be theirs. They can take five grand out of my account. It's like, what? Well, this welcome to the whole brave new world, folks. This is uh, 1984 we're living in. It's, not, it's way past 1984, but the gist of that whole thing is coming to pass. Now, we're also seeing an intentional destruction of the agriculture and the food industry, infrastructures. We're seeing an intentional destruction of our energy in our energy in infrastructures. We're seeing an intentional destruction of society with destruction of the home, destruction of, of marriage, destruction of, of functional families. Just everything that's held America together, the moral fabric of our country is being torn apart. Uh, we're seeing the, our country go soft on crime. You know, it was really eye-opening to me to realize that our government is not serious about the war on crime. And they're not serious about the war on drugs. If they were serious on the war on drugs, we could fix this in one year. Everyone that's, that's a big shot in the drug world, whether they're in America, South America, or Asia, Africa, wherever they're coming from, Middle East, they'd either be in the ground or in the Marine Corps. We'd be fixing them. We could fix this overnight. But this is political capital. If you fix the problem, how do you get elected? How do you get billions of dollars given to you? You can't fix the problem. You need that money to keep coming in, and you need some, some way to get voted into office. That's why we don't fix our unemployment problems. That's why we don't fix the crime problems. That's why we don't fix the drug problem. Having those problems is a huge vote-getter and a huge money-maker for pork barrel programs that do nothing. Oh, man, I look at this world and I just say, oh, Lord, can you just come tomorrow? Man, change, today, forget tomorrow, today. But we got to be faithful, folks. We don't know. I'd love to have the rapture happen this week. I, I would love to be out of the world now, but we don't know. We might have to go through some very hard times before that rapture trumpet blows. You know, we, folks, we could... Six months from now, a year from now, every one of us could be out of our car, out of our home, out of our job, in a FEMA camp. You know, those FEMA camps that don't really exist? The ones that are just an urban legend? Well, anyway, we could be there, eating outdated food and sleeping on World War II vintage cots. But if, if so, it doesn't really matter, does it? The world can take everything we have. They can't take Jesus out of our heart. They can't take eternity from us. Amen. Our whole life can go south in a bad, bad way. And we got one sweet, long eternity to be with Jesus. You know what? I'm going to get to that later, so I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail now. But there's one more thing that gets in the way, folks. Now, we've had our interest in, in the clean part of the world dampened in the last few years. At least I think most of us have. But we still hear the siren song of good things. And folks, especially you young folks, I want you to pay attention to this. The enemy of the best that you can do for the Lord Jesus is not bad things, wicked things, or the worst things. The enemy is not even mediocre things. The enemy of the best is things that are good. You know, when I see young believers struggling, struggling with fornication, struggling with alcohol, struggling with pot smoking or, or running around with a bad crowd, I'm not half as worried as I am when I see them get caught up with, with their hobbies and their entertainment and their recreation. If they go falling into fornication or, or drugs or, or pot, I know their conscience is going to side with the Bible and they're going to get things right. But they start getting all caught up in their silly video games or they get all caught up in their hobbies and you see guys spending more time and money on their hobbies than they do on the things of God. We've got a serious spiritual issue going on here. And you know, one of the things that bothers me about this is I'm just looking at this younger generation of guys and I'm thinking... Oh, man, I feel sorry for the young ladies looking for a husband material here. Every one of these young guys comes with a wagon load of toys. 
I, I would not want to be a young lady looking for a husband this generation. And certainly not if you want a man of God. Young men, if you're caught up in your hobbies or your entertainments and your recreation, I'm not telling you they can't have any of that in your life at all, but I want to give you a challenge. You want to be a man of God in the last days? You want to stand up and, and amount to something in this world that's going to count for eternity? I want you to walk away from your video games and find entertainment and recreation that has some profit in it. Don't waste your time on things that have zero eternal return. Put your time in the Word of God. Find something you can do that has some practical value in it that you enjoy doing. Whether it's something that has sports that get your little exercise going. I have to exercise on a regular basis so I can keep my brain going in top capacity. Otherwise, I get lazy. I exercise, I need less sleep. So I put an hour of it into exercise and I get more work done in an 8-hour day than I normally get done in a 12-hour day. This is a game for me. But when we start wasting too much time on games and entertainment and recreation, folks, we're losing eternal opportunity. This is the cutting edge. Whether you're going to be a woman of God or a man of God is probably not going to come down to whether you get victory over your drinking or your smoking. That's earlier in the curve of learning. Whether you're going to amount to a man of God or a woman of God is going to come down to how you use your time and your money and your heart affections for the things of God, for eternity. I like to remind folks, folks, we got one short life to be a good soldier down here. We've got one long eternity to be fulfilled human beings. Now, you try and be fulfilled down here in the things of this life, and what's going to happen? You're fighting an uphill battle, and the deck is stacked against you. You're living in a world that's cursed, and you're living in a world in which the greatest degrees of success are only held out to those that will sell out to the mystery of Babylon in the world, the spirit of iniquity. You're trying to be a faithful Christian and climb the ladder of success in this life. It's stacked against you. And, and sometimes it seems like the harder people try to have success and happiness and fulfillment in the clean things of this world, the farther it escapes away from them. It's like trying to capture soap bubbles, folks. A soap bubble is really hard to catch, and it's impossible to keep. But if you lay your, your heart and your mind on treasure in heaven some glorious day, now you're looking at treasure which is easy to gain and impossible to lose. Boy, if you can wrap your mind around the fact the opportunity that's been given you down here to be a good soldier for the Lord Jesus Christ with earning rewards for eternity. This is a once, not just a once in your lifetime, this is a once in eternity opportunity. This is the greatest investment of all time. I remember one time when I was a young man in college. It's my first day of college, University of North Dakota. And all the students were in the class, and I was a little older because I'd been in the Army first, then I went into college. And the teacher wasn't showing up, and I'm looking at my watch. So I said, well, I'm not going to let this opportunity go by. So I get up in front of the class, I start preaching the gospel. And I just gave a little illustration. I said, listen, what's the most valuable thing you have that you can invest? And people, oh, oh, they thought I was a teacher. <laughs> oh, oh, money. Well, uh, this or that or your education. And they're giving all these answers. I said, no, it's your heart. Your heart is the thing that you have that's worth the most. And I challenge the kids in that classroom to give their heart, make the best investment you can make in all of eternity, which is to invest your heart in the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. We give him our heart. We lose our heart, our soul, our life for the gospel and for, for Christ, and we gain it back with, with eternal, infinite, infinite, eternal interest. Well, I'm just wrapping up my message and the teacher walks back in that classroom. And he's kind of looking at me stunned. I wave, sat down. Later on that semester, I had two different people come up and tell me they were awakened and converted on that day. Praise the Lord. 
you, can, you can't afford to be timid. You can't afford to be bold. And you say, well, I, I'm, I'm not much of a preacher. Well, none of us are. Not one of us is. We all need help from the Lord. We all need help from the Lord. So let me wrap up this eighth point here, and then we're going to go on to the conclusion of the message. We've already touched on this a little bit, but the things that are going to get in the way of the best things are good things. And this world is, you know, it's, we all set sail as a young believer. We're, on, we're going to go on an adventure for Jesus, and we're going, to, we're going to see souls saved. We're going to see souls discipled. We're going to see souls educated. We're going to see them encouraged. We're going to see them built up. And we're going to be a testimony for righteousness and a testimony for the gospel. We have all these grand ambitions, and then life happens. And slowly, we just kind of cool off, and things get in the way. And we, we just have too much time and energy and heart into our career or our job or our education. Or we have too much time uh, invested in our hobbies. We get all these good things thrown at us. And we have uh, opportunities and pleasures and treasures that are thrown at us. And even noble causes that people give their life to. A lot of these things are not intrinsically bad. But that's their danger. We don't recognize them as getting in the way of things that have eternal value. So one of the best things we can do as a believer is to take and evaluate our life. And look, is there any place where I can trim out some things that are good and replace them by things that are better? Because we get this one short life to be a good soldier. We get one long eternity to be fulfilled. We get to be fulfilled in an environment where it's impossible not to be fulfilled. Where down here, it's impossible to be fulfilled. At any rate, we need to be serious and diligent soldiers. Now, everywhere I look, I see Christians being discouraged. I see them tired. I, I regularly, on my Twitter account, I have people say, Brother Lee, I am just so tired. I can't go another day. I can identify. I know what it's like to be tired in this world. We're tired of the new world order. We're tired of always having this tension between good things and eternal things. And we're tired of having uh, all this weight and pressure down on us. And we're tired of, well, we get tired of being tired. We get tired of being discouraged. And I I just want to point out something. Uh, Sometimes uh, people are right and say, well, brother, I mean, I'm just starting to wonder if I'm even spiritual. I mean, I'm just so discouraged. I'm so tired. Hold on. I would be worried If you weren't tired or discouraged, the fact that you're tired and discouraged, for me, that's a sign of rejoicing. Why would I rejoice over that? That tells me that you're in a battle. If you were at home doing the couch potato thing, you wouldn't be tired. You wouldn't be wore out and and weary and discouraged. You'd be channel surfing. But the fact that you're, you're tired and discouraged and you feel like you can't take another step, that tells me you've been given it on the battlefield. So rejoice. You know, folks, if we understand this, it's going to make things go so much better. We are down here not to live a fun life that's more like summer camp or a church picnic. We're down here in a war on a battlefield. And we get tired, we get dirty, we get hungry, we get cold, we get discouraged. We're lack of supplies, frustrations, constantly. That's the battlefield. But this is the opportunity for glory, folks. This is your opportunity. This is your opportunity to be part of the most glorious hour in the history of the church since the apostles. This is the opportunity for you, whether you're 80 years old or 60 years old or 40 years old or 20 years old or whether a teenager, to stand up and to stand for truth and to be a fire that the world cannot put out. To be a light for Jesus that cannot be hid. To be a testimony. To have a glorious hour so you can have a glorious reward in eternity. You know, the more battlefield glory you have down here, the bigger your glory in eternity will be. Every tear, every trial, every sorrow, 
every discouragement, every frustration, every sacrifice, every penny, every moment that you put into things of God is going to be rewarded with eternal, infinite interest in glory. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, I live by this. 2 Corinthians 4.17 Your light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for you a far more exceeding and eternal way to glory. Now I can wrap my mind around a far more exceeding way to glory because I just think, okay, a hundred train cars full of glory or maybe one big grain ship full of glory. But once I throw infinity or eternity in that package, in the equation, now my mind just starts to smoke. I can't even wrap my mind around that. God is looking down here on your efforts to glorify him in a battlefield situation where it's extremely difficult to glorify him if you're not on the battlefield. Just be encouraged. Well, but I don't have a lot of gift. So, just go do what you can do. Oh, I don't feel called. We'll find something to do. Whatever your hand finds to do, just do it. Well, I'm not eloquent. Well, neither was Moses. I'm not spiritual. None of us are. Quit making excuses. Just go forth and do something for the Lord Jesus. Let him bless. He's not looking for spiritual giants. He's looking for poor, trembling, broken believers that have a giant God who honors weak, cracked vessels with power and glory and blessing in their work. So it's time to soldier up, folks. You know, there's a verse that says, quit ye like men, be strong. I like to paraphrase that. Quit being a wuss and man up. (laughs) Or woman up. It's time to put on that armor. It's time to go to war. If we're in, and if we're already in the war and we're tired and discouraged, look to the Lord. You know, one of my favorite passages, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. If we wait on the Lord, he will renew our strength. We will rise up on wings as eagles. We will run and not be weary. We will walk and not faint. What a promise that is. You know, when we're looking at what the Lord has called us to do, this cannot be done in the current circumstances by mere human strength. We are beyond the hour, folks, in the battle when we can just go through the motions with human strength and go through the church machinery motions and have this thing keep going forwards. Those circles where people are going forwards on mere human strength and going forwards on mere church machinery, those things are falling apart. They're collapsing. But those that go forth in the strength of the Holy Spirit, in the strength of the Word of God, and looking for the blessing of God. These works, they're growing in their own individual heart. They're growing in their little circles of fellowship. They're growing in their congregations and their churches. We just need to be good soldiers, folks. Time is short, and eternity is long. And we have a battle that's been given to us. We can't run from it. There is no retirement in time of war. You know, I, I was asked, I was, got a chance to preach the gospel to a young man yesterday on the airplane. I, I love it when I'm traveling. So, Lord, give me a chance to set someone next to me that I can talk to. Captive audience for two hours. And he asked me, so, you plan on retiring someday? There's no retirement until I can't stand up and open my mouth. Or the rapture comes first. Just bear up, folks. Keep your eyes on the Lord. The Lord has battles for you to face. Don't be discouraged. When you find yourself discouraged, look to him for encouragement. Because there is joy the world cannot give, battlefield joy. There is peace the world cannot give. You can have peace on the battlefield. You can have a vision that the world cannot put out. You can have a fire that the world cannot put out. 
You can have a fire that you're going to go forth in battle according to your gift and your call, no matter what anyone else around you does. So seek the Lord for this. Because the Lord has things he has for each and every one of you. Things he wants you to do and you to be between now and the rapture of the church. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for all the good things you've given us. And we do pray that you would strengthen and encourage every soul here, that you would light a fire in their hearts, Lord, that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit, that you would fill them with your word, that you would give them a vision that the world cannot discourage or put out, that you would give a fire in their heart the world cannot discourage or put out, Lord, that you would take them forwards into battle in their family, in their friends, in their neighborhood, when they're at the store, when they're in the supermarket, when they're at the gas station, when they're traveling, Lord, give them opportunities, give them open doors. When you give open doors, no man can shut. And Lord, we look forward to your blessing and we pray that you would bless this little flock here in Bakersfield, Rock Harbor Church. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.